Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. Any Bible enthusiasts here this morning? <laughs> a few, good. I'm, I feel like I'm in good company here this morning. And if you are a Bible enthusiast, and even if you're not particularly uh, a Bible enthusiast, you can probably name some of the great uh, Israelites that we read about in Scripture. You can come up with some of the names just uh, knowing them historically. And I think about those whose uh, names are recorded, and even sometimes their, their histories are recorded, or their events, or their words are recorded in the uh, Holy Scriptures. I think of Abraham and Sarah, these men and women, uh, we read about them. And just think about if you, all your life was written about, and all the generations were reading about your life, and we know how Scripture is, is, is so honest, so truthful. It shows both the good side sometimes and also sometimes some of the tough things and bad decisions. But folks like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah and Rachel, Rachel, Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David, how long do you want me to keep going, huh? <laughs> All the Hebrew prophets. And one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, and I'm going to confess it to you today is Miriam, <laughs> the mother of Yeshua. <laughs> is Miriam the mother of Yeshua? How many think she was just an incredible person? She was. And also, I think of the Shlichim, the apostles, all those first century Jewish followers of Yeshua, all the Talmudim. I think of other first century Messianic Jews that we read about, particularly in the book of Maaseh Shlichim, the Acts of the Apostles, such as Barnabas and Apollos. These were tremendous people. People who had come forth from Israel that we, we learn about them in Scripture but there's one that's the crown of them all, the crown and glory, who came forth from the tribe of Judah. His name is Yeshua. It tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, that Yeshua was a descendant of both Abraham and David. So he was a descendant of Abraham, and he came through David's tribe, the tribe of Yehuda, the tribe of Judah. Tremendous people. With their foibles, sometimes we see, but there they are presented to us in Scripture. You can make a very long list. There are actually lists out there of all the people that are mentioned. Some are mentioned with bright lights and, and big action, and others are just a tiny mention, but that doesn't mean the ones that aren't mentioned so much are unimportant. Some who aren't mentioned very often are actually quite important. And as you think about these Israelites, there are also those who were non-Jews, who weren't from Israel, that were extremely important as we start to think of their names and think of the plan and purpose of God that was connected to some of them, it's also an amazing thing. Can you really imagine Rahab, Rahab, what she did, where she came from, and how important she was? She's mentioned by name. She's mentioned in the genealogies. How about Ruth? Think about Ruth. Ruth is often when we ask folks, what's your favorite character? Or what's your favorite woman that's mentioned in Scripture? Ruth is almost always the first one mentioned. Ruth. A whole book is named after her. We read about Ruth at Shavuot in particular. And then there's also another character who's from a totally different background. His name is Cyrus. How did God use Cyrus? It's amazing to open the doors, this king to open the doors 
for the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews to return back to our promised land. And then there are some new covenant ones, Cornelius. How many remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Cornelius, what an incredible person. We'll talk more about him in a minute. And then there's the one that's part of this week's parasha. He's called Yitro, Jethro, Jethro. What an incredible man this is. We call him Jethro. Hebrew name is Yitro. He was the father-in-law, the Choten, it says in Hebrew. He was the father-in-law of Moses. Well, that makes him important and significant right there. He was the grandfather of Moshe's children. <laughs> there, there you go. And he's a fascinating biblical character. And there's actually quite a bit written about him. And this week's parasha, as I mentioned, bears his name. His name is Yitro. We're going to talk about him in detail in Shabbaton today. But there, there are so many things that we read about him, but he's first introduced to us in Parashat Shemot, in the first, very first parashah portion of the book of Exodus is where we're introduced to Jethro. And here we, when we get to Exodus chapter 18, which is the beginning of this week's parashah, there he is again in a very significant manner, Jethro, Yitro. There are a number of verses in chapter 18, and I'll encourage you, if you have a chance, to read all of Exodus chapter 18. I am going to pull out a few of the verses for brevity's sake. I'm not going to read all of chapter 18, but please, if you get a chance, read Exodus chapter 18, which tells us this important situation, this important input that the Choten, the uh, father-in-law of Moses, had with Moses, which impacted not only Moses, but all of Israel. Well, let me read a few of the verse. I'll point out a few verses from Exodus chapter 18. We'll begin with verse 1. It says, And Jethro, Kohen Midian, the priest, the Kohen of Midian, Moses Choten, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So Jethro hears what God had done. Did he hear about the ten plagues? Probably. <laughs> Did he hear about some of the other situations? Probably both the good and the difficult things, but ultimately he hears all that God had done. And, you know, it's so important in our lives that we proclaim the good things the Lord is doing. And not only the things he's doing now, but proclaim his greatness, the things he has done. That's so important. And Jethro heard those things. He heard that all, all that the Lord had uh, done for Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt. And in verse 5 of Exodus 18, again, we'll hit some verses here in Exodus 18. says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with Moses' sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where Moses was encamped at the mountain of God. And we know what happens at the end of this week's parasha in Exodus chapter 20 and also in Exodus 19. But Moshe and the children of Israel are camped at Mount Sinai, at the very base of Mount Sinai. And Moses' father-in-law comes at that time while they're camped at the very base of Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, comes, he brings uh, Moses' children, and he comes to Moses and he interacts with Moses. Exodus 18 tells us much of what happened between them. Let's jump forward to verse 8. And Moses told Jethro, his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh. Can you imagine having a recording of Moses telling his father-in-law, this is what happened. First-hand account, telling his father, you know, Jethro, I went into the courts of, of, the, of the Pharaoh, and I said, let my people go. You know, can you imagine this? And Moses told his father-in-law, Jethro, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered him. You know, it's so important when we have issues in our life and difficulties, and all of us do at times, that we not forget the Lord. That we are, are clearly stating that the Lord is good. And, you know, you may be going through something right, right this morning. 
Let your eyes be upon the Lord and see the good things that he will do. Proclaim his goodness. Proclaim the good things of the Lord. It seems like Moses did that, but he was very honest also. And he told of the hardships that Israel had experienced. And verse 9 continues. And after Jethro hears all this tale, all this story, all the narrative, all the history that happened, however you want to express that idea, Jethro has the, the, the possibility to respond in different ways to hearing that. Here's what it says he does. This is one of the things that makes Jethro so distinct. Verse 9, then Jethro rejoiced. He rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel. By the way, are you able to rejoice with those who rejoice? Or do you feel jealous sometimes? Well, why are they getting so blessed and I'm not? It says, Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, and Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, and the word therefore Lord is yod heh vav Blessed be Adonai. That special name for, for the God of Israel. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. In verse 11, he makes this declaration. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. Jethro, through the testimony and through understanding more and more about the Lord, is coming to a place of closer connection with the God of Israel and recognition of the God of Israel. And remember, he's a priest of Midian. He's a Kohen Midian, it says. He's a religious person in the area of Midian. Now, there are many reasons why Jethro, I think, shines out in Scripture. Many reasons but one reason he stands out, I think, is connected to what we read in last week's parasha. And please hear me on this. I've been emphasizing Jethro, but the end of last week's parasha should get our attention. And I'm talking about what we read in Exodus chapter 17 at the very end. And let me read a little bit to you because we're introduced to another person from the nations. We are learning of Jethro in Exodus chapter 18. We were introduced to Jethro in Exodus chapter 2. But in Exodus chapter 17, we're introduced to someone else from the nations, someone else who wasn't from Israel. I'll mention his name. You probably know, and we can probably boo after we say, but his name is Amalek, Amalek. That's right up there with Haman. In fact, it's... <laughs> I was waiting for that somewhere along the line. But according to Jewish custom, and there seems to be some link there, that Haman was connected to the Amalekites. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, genealogically. But let me read to you a little bit. We read a little bit about Jethro. He's a shining character. He rejoices in all the good things God had done. He rejoices in hearing how God had delivered the people. But just before Jethro's really spoken about in Exodus 18, there's Exodus chapter 17. And there's almost the antithetical character, the, the opposite character of Jethro with Amalek. Let me read some verses from chapter 17. Again, we can't read all of it for time's sake, but if you have a chance now, your homework is read Exodus 17 and 18 together splice them together. They're divided by the parashayot, by the Torah portions. But when you put them together and you see the juxtapositioning on one hand in chapter 17 of Amalek and on the other hand chapter 18 of Exodus, Jethro, you have these two side by side. And much information stated about both of them in the Torah. Exodus chapter 17, let's read verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Jethro rejoiced to hear all God had done for Israel. Jethro, uh, Amalek comes and what does he do? He fights with Israel. In verse 9, Exodus chapter 17, and Moses said to Yehoshua, to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. And that's almost a recounting of all of Israel's history from then on. 
from that point on, in traditional Judaism, everyone who's an enemy of Israel is like an Amalek. Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses said to him. I'm so glad that Joshua was obedient, aren't you? Aren't you? So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Verse 13, so Joshua defeated, the Hebrew word is halash, it's to do with the word halash. He weakened he weakened, he defeated Amalek and his people at that time, but Amalek considered to continue to persist. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Verse 14 of Exodus chapter 17, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for Zikaron Basefer, it says. Write this for Zikaron Basefer, a memorial in the book. Write this, the Lord says to Moses, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And then in verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called its name Adonai Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Really, my miracle is my banner. In verse 16, for Moses said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek, midor le dor, from generation to generation. Friends, do you see here this morning the contrast between an Amalek and a Jethro? Two very different people. Both came from the nations. But both responded, they responded in a different manner to the God of Israel and the people of Israel and the land of Israel and the promises given to Israel. The contrast is great. So Scripture first introduces us to Amalek, although we had heard about um, Jethro back in chapter 2 and a little bit beyond that, but we're introduced in a big way to Amalek. And then one after the other, from Amalek to Jethro, it's almost as if to show us the contrast. And if I could step a little further with idea, maybe to show us that which way will we go in our relationship with the God of Israel and the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the promises that God has given to Israel. How will we view this? Will we rejoice or will we fight? Now, Amalek... And the Amalekites fought Israel. But in, in reality, as you read chapter 17 of Exodus, you know who they were really fighting? Yes, they were fighting on a flesh and blood level, and Joshua weakens them and defeats them at that time. But the Scripture says they were fighting against the Lord. They were physically fighting Amalek, but they were fighting against the Lord, meaning all the purposes and plans of God that pertain to Israel and the Jewish people, Amalek was fighting against and trying to hinder and trying to stop. Friends, those of you familiar with history, you realize that Amalek, that as a type, has continued to happen concerning the Jewish people in Israel from that day forward. Whether it be at the time of can I say it? Haman. <laughs> or all the way up to modern times. And I won't mention those names. Some of those names I don't even want to say. Folks that have fought with. But on the other hand, there are those who have stood with Israel with such love and care, have stood with the Jewish people through thick and thin. And before we conclude today, I want to tell you about a few of them. A few modern folks and their stand for Israel. So on one hand, Amalek, God says, I'm going to fight with him forever. Midor le dor, from generation to generation, Amalek will be there, and I'm fighting him. You're going to fight him. And then on the other hand, there's Jethro, who's honored. When he, he honored the Lord, and he's honored by the Lord. What's the name of this week's portion? Jethro. He's remembered to this time. Jethro helped the people of Israel. He didn't try to hurt them. Jethro supported the people of Israel. He didn't try to vanquish them. So the contrast is great, as if to show us there's two different paths, two different ways we can approach God, the God of Israel and the people of Israel, as an Amalek or as a Jethro.
So, friends, you see, figuratively speaking, there is a zikaron, a memorial. Can I put it in these terms? Maybe there is a, a Mount Rushmore of sorts. And there are faces on that Mount Rushmore of individuals from the nations that have shined, shined in relationship with the God of Israel and the people of Israel. I mentioned some. Ruth, she's Mount Rushmore worthy. <laughs> some would say Cyrus, Mount Rushmore worthy. Some would say Cornelius, Mount Rushmore Memorial worthy and others just like them. Because to love the God of Israel means to love what he loves. To love the God of Israel means to love what he loves and to hate and reject what he does. If we say we love God and we're a little bit too cozy with living a sinful life, something's not quite kosher there. Something's off. If we say we love God, I've never understood this. Of individuals say, well, I love the Lord. I can't stand Israel. I love the Lord. I, 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 you know, I, the nation of Israel and then all these evil things they are saying currently about the nation of Israel, which is a, a bunch of narishkites, a bunch of uh, basura garbage about Israel. There's an inconsistency to say we love the God of Israel and that we don't love the people of Israel or the land of Israel. Something's not consistent. Maybe I'm wrong in my thinking, but that's how I would view it. And Scripture seems to uphold that because at, at a core spiritual level, the Lord opposes those who resist his plans and his purposes. And central there has been the people of Israel, the land of Israel central to the God of Israel. And he opposes those who resist his plans and purposes and spurn his grace, but he helps those who honor him. Now, through Yeshua, our Messiah, great provision has been made for all peoples, from all nations. After all, the Great Commission says, go into all the world and preach the good news, the Besorah, the gospel. Teach them all things that I've commanded you. And there was that promise, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, what then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32 this is just before Romans 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters that focus so much on God's plan for the Jewish people, for Israel. He who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up on behalf of us all, is it possible that having given us a son, he would not give us everything else too? There's great benefit, spiritual benefit, to serving the Lord and loving the Messiah. And if Jethro is a shining example, which I'm uh, trying to express here this Shabbat morning. If Jethro is a shining example of an individual from the nations who so loved the God of Israel, grew in his love and affection to the God of Israel and the people of Israel, we have to segue then to Cornelius in the New Covenant. And let me tell you a little bit about Cornelius. How many have heard of Cornelius? <laughs> I had a friend whose last name was Cornelius. <laughs> and uh, every time I saw this guy, he was the opposite of this Cornelius. <laughs> but every time I saw him, the only thing I think of was Acts chapter 10. Well, yeah, he was very different from Acts chapter 10. <laughs> but let me read you a few verses again. And if you, if you want extra credit here, go ahead and read Acts chapter 10, along with Exodus 17 and Exodus 18. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea. Caesarea's on the coast of Israel, still a very pretty place. There was a big Colosseum there, a big uh, amphitheater, a big settlement there. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a Roman army officer, a centurion, in what was called the Italian Regiment. So he was from Rome, from Italy, at least based there. And then verse 2 describes this man. 
if you just stopped at verse 1, you'd think, oh, there's no good coming out of this. And first century Israel, a Roman centurion, an officer, that, and they're overlording the whole country. But verse 2 quickly tells us that this centurion, Cornelius, was not like other centurions. It says he was a devout man. It says he was a God-fearer. It says, as was his whole household, so he was leading his household in a way different than most centurions led their household, which was into abject idolatry. He was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household, and he gave generously to help the Jewish people and prayed regularly to God. How many of you like those traits in a person? Boy, this guy's already a shining character. It looks, it looks like he should be also in our figurative Mount Rushmore there. And later in verse 22 of Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is descri described by one of his servants. Without Cornelius being there, by the way, Cornelius' servants describe him as this, quote, verse 22 of Acts 10, describes him as a just man, a righteous man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. That's how he's described. His, his servants say that about him, so it's not just a window dressing for him, but it's a reality for him. This is the kind of person he is. So let's think a little bit about this man, Cornelius, probably from Rome or from the Roman cohort, a leader, a centurion, as we've said. But during the first century in Israel, during the first century, centurions, and he was a major centurion, centurions were, if you, were, if you agree, were the backbone of the Roman army presence. They were the leadership of the Roman army presence. In some ways, they were the decision makers. At certain, to a certain level, they were the decision makers. They were the authority on the ground. They, they had others who were under them that they said to do this, and they did it. Or don't do this, and they didn't do it. They were that kind of people. And as those who were the backbone of Roman authority in first century Israel, they were not always men of sterling character. The vast majority, and this is why Cornelius just shines forth, the vast majority of them were idolaters and pagans and everything that went with that. That's who they were. But not, not this one, not Cornelius. They were particularly, particularly cruel to non-Roman citizens. To non-Roman citizens, uh, they, the, a person who was a non-Roman was, you know, nothing. Someone that you could just subjugate and do what you wanted with. They were particularly cruel to them at times. And as a result, in first century Israel, we know historically that the Jewish population, the Jewish population, there has always been a Jewish population in Israel. The Jewish population actually feared centurions, wanted to get away from centurions. Stay away from them because centurions were invested with some type of authority over them and they could literally pick that guy up and put them in the prison or torture them, do whatever they wanted to do. So they stayed away, the Jewish population. And as they feared them, they despised them. That often happens. They despised them and they, they despised particularly the cruelty and the, the harsh treatment and the overlording that these centurions did and represented to them. Now, when you think it through, if you're familiar with what happens in Acts chapter 10, you can say without a doubt that Peter was a brave man. Sure, the Lord spoke to him, and the Lord told him what to do, but still walking and going from Joppa to Caesarea, which is a bit of a jaunt, by the way, it still is, during that whole walk, that whole time of going to meet Cornelius, who knows what could have been going through Peter's head. He knew about centurions. Now, he had heard that this one was a just man, as his servant said in verse 22, who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of Israel. So Peter is told to go there. In most circumstances, 
First century Sabras, because all the apostles were Sabras. First century Sabras, native-born Israelis. In most cases, being asked to go face-to-face with a centurion was not something you wanted. It's not something you were relishing to get involved with. And Peter was brought face-to-face with this first century centurion that I'm speaking of, his name Cornelius. Now, Peter did at that time, I think, the same thing that we must do. Please hear me if you don't hear anything else. He did the same thing at that time when word comes to him that Cornelius wants to see him, and he he hears all that message about Cornelius wanting to see him. Peter does the same thing that we should do now in the 21st century. He obeyed the Holy Spirit. He obeyed the Ruach. Do you think that prescription has changed for us now that we don't need to obey the Ruach? No, we need to obey the Ruach too. It's exactly what Peter did. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Will you read that with me? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or children of God. So Peter obeyed after Cornelius sends his servants to get him. Remember, Joppa is where he's at. He goes all the way to Caesarea, a number of miles. He goes with some perfect strangers, these servants, and he's being told he's going to a centurion's house. Yay. <laughs> but he's told by someone higher, the Lord himself, to do it. So he does it. And you have to admire that about Peter. Sure, Peter is often described, there's even uh, an idea called the Peter principle. He's often described as this brash guy. But he's also a man who yielded to the Holy Spirit. Here's a good example. So let's read what happens. Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. So Kepha, Peter, arrives at Cornelius' house. Caesarea was a very nice place at that time. And even now, modern Israelis live in Caesarea, a very nice area, beautiful homes. On the, on the uh, Mediterranean Sea shore, some of you have been to Caesarea. So Peter gets there. He's led there by the servants. He goes there. He, re- he responds to the Spirit of God that tells him to go, and he goes. Acts chapter 10, verse 30 says, So Cornelius said, and I'd like you to notice the great detail of Cornelius. Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. How aware is Cornelius of his life and what he's doing? Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, Kepha. This very time I was fasting. Four days ago. And notice the further detail. At the ninth hour, many have said that this was an hour of prayer for the Jews of first century. At the ninth hour... I prayed in my house. I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Do you know your clothing can matter, by the way? How you present yourself? Most of the time in Scripture, you see the Lord presenting himself in this kind of a manner. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, notice he knew his name. Calls him by name. If anyone loves God, that person is known of the Lord. If you're here today and you love the God of Israel and you love his people, the Lord knows your very name. And I'd suggest to you he knows your address too. And I'd suggest to you he knows everything else about you. Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius... Your prayer has been heard. Now, I want to stop for a moment. Do you spend time in prayer? Say, Lord, will you hear me? Well, if you're not praying, you you have not because you ask not. If we're not spending time in prayer, how can we expect God to respond? He only mercifully responds because he knows the, the, the inclinations of our heart. But he knew Cornelius' name. He knew exactly where he was because the person appeared in bright clothing, it says, the Malach, and says, your prayer has been heard. 
And then it says this, and your charitable gifts are remembered. One translation says your charitable gifts have come up as a memorial to you. In the sight of God, verse 31. Verse 32, Cornelius explaining why Kepha was where he was at Cornelius' house. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon, Shimon, here, whose name is Peter, Kepha. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. <laughs> and Cornelius, the centurion is, he's so used to people obeying him and doing, Cornelius does that very thing. Sure, he's a centurion. He said, no, I don't have to listen to you. Who are you? No, he doesn't do that. It says, so I sent to you immediately. Notice he didn't procrastinate. We miss so many blessings from God because we put it off. And we procrastinate. I've done the same thing at times. I miss what God really wants because I procrastinate. I miss the opportunity. One thing that I've been learning is that when he speaks to me about something, particularly since I speak often here, that I don't let it go past. I write it down. My wife will tell you at times, I I tell her, don't be be worried, honey, if I get up at 2.30 in the morning. And so many times in the night, the Lord speaks to me. This is what I want you to speak about at Rosh Pina. This is what you should do. Friends, we don't want to miss those things. God is not on our time clock. God speaks to us when he wants to speak to us, and he wants us to respond at that time. We say, no, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only available 8 to 5. Don't bother me in between, at any other time. How does that sound? Not good. It sounds like we're the Lord and he's our servant. Verse 32, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before who? God. Cornelius, he was a God-fearer. Sure, he had the apostle Peter there, but he says, we're all present really before God. We're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. So who's he interested in hearing from? Well, the human vessel is Kepha, Peter, but this man wants to hear from God. You know, it's no, it's not hyperbole. It's not hyperbole to say that this event, this event that unfolds in Acts chapter 10 was a pivotal event in the history of the Jewish people and dare I say it, the world. Because it's at this event that Cornelius, by all indicators, was the first non-Jew, the first non-Israelite, first non-Jew to enter into the fullness of the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. As you read through, let's, let's see what happens, in case you're not familiar with the narrative. So here's the rest of the story. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, here's Peter's response. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. By the way, neither should we. He shows no partiality. Verse 35, Kepha gets the message. Who was he? He was the apostle to the Jews. But he understands that God wants, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and does what works righteousness is accepted by him. Cornelius, you're accepted by him because you fear him and you've done righteous things. He supported the, the Jewish community. Historians say that he helped build synagogues in the first century. He supported them. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Yeshua the Messiah, he is the Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the immersion which John preached, 
how God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Verse 40, Acts chapter 10, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So there it is at the house of Cornelius. That Kepha, the apostle to the Yodim, the apostle to the Jewish people, speaks to this centurion the gospel and shares it with him. And if you read the rest of what happens, basically what happens, again, if you have a chance, read all of Acts chapter 10. But the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius with the evidence of speaking in unknown tongues, comes upon Cornelius and his household, and Cornelius says, I need to be immersed in water. So did Peter procrastinate about it? No. He did it. He did it. So there Cornelius and his whole family now, what's curious to me about Cornelius' story is that we don't know much of what happens afterwards. <laughs> but it's interesting speculation. Did he go back to Rome and tell everybody he met about what happened to him? Friends, how many of you think that he might have done something like that? Because that's how people are. They go and they tell, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. That's why we need to let people know what's happened in our life, to give them our testimony. Let them know that God has changed us. God has filled us with the Spirit. God has called us. God has used us and wants to continue to use us and tell them he wants to do the same for you. And I can't imagine Cornelius and his whole household going back to Rome when his gig is up in, in um, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel in the first century, and keeping his mouth shut. I just can't imagine it. Such a dramatic thing. Now, I want to conclude with bringing these two together, Jethro and Cornelius. Jethro, Cornelius. There are some common traits between the two of them. I want to share eight of them. There's many more than eight, by the way. But I want to share eight common traits just briefly. When you put the two together and you look at these two historical persons, you realize there's some common traits between these two. Number one, they were teachable and they were willing to follow God. Number two, they fostered a growing devotion to God. Jethro eventually even uses the, the name yod heh in describing God. And he, and he rejoices in all God has done for Israel. And he helps Moshe greatly with advice, with the OS, with counsel. And Cornelius, well, it's axiomatic. We know what happened with him. So they fostered, number two, a growing devotion to God in their lives, both Jethro and Cornelius. Number three, key one. They were men of prayer. How do we know that? Jethro was a Kohen Midian. He was a priest of Midian. He was a religious man in his community that had to involve some type of prayer and devotion. Cornelius was a praying centurion. I mean, he, may, he might have been the only one in Israel at that time, but God knew his address and knew his name and knew his plan for him. You may be the only believer in your family right now, but God knows he wants to use you in your family. You may be the only believer at your workplace, but he knows. He knows where you work, and he wants to use you there, or it's your place of education. So number three, they were men of prayer. Number four, these two, Jethro and Cornelius, when we look at the traits that, that bind them together, we see commonality with, number four, they acted kindly and they were generous towards the people of God, both of them. Number five, this connected to number four, they extended hospitality to others. Jethro was very accommodating to Moses. 
so accommodating that Jethro's uh, daughter married Moses. <laughs> Zipporah marries Moses. And Cornelius, he's, he extends hospitality. He opens his, his door to this Jew, Peter. This Jewish man in the first century that he would have normally not had contact with, although he was different than most. So they acted kindly. And number five, they extended hospitality to others. Number six, they were leave, willing to leave their comfort zones to reach out and be a blessing to others. Many times the blessings of God are thwarted in our life because we won't leave the comfort zone. By the way, Kepha left his comfort zone in order to go to Cornelius' home. Number seven, they influenced those around them. Jethro influenced those around him, including his grandchildren and others. And Cornelius, his whole household came to faith. So they influenced those around them by their own faithful actions. And lastly, number eight, today they both have, how shall I say it? They both have names that are names of honor, Jethro and Cornelius. Those who know Scripture and you hear those two names, something nice comes up in your thinking. When I hear the name Cornelius, I don't, if I, once I get my friend who's got that last name out of mine, then there's this Cornelius. And what we read, the testimony of him, what an incredible man he was. So their names are names of honor, a memorial in a sense, a remembrance of them and, and their deed, their heart towards the God of Israel and their heart towards the people of Israel. Friends, I think we should realize and realize well that many heroes of the modern state of Israel and indeed the modern Messianic Jewish community came from the nations, not just from Israel. There are many. I began listing some of the ones I know historically that were critical. And, I, and I'll just mention a few. Some of you may have heard of these individuals. Some may not have heard of them. But these were individuals that impacted the state of Israel, that have uh, streets named after them, and they're not from Israel. They're from the nations. Anybody ever heard of Balfour, Arthur Balfour? <laughs> You can't hardly read any modern Israel, a history of Israel without coming across this name. How about Ord Wingate? Anybody ever heard of Wingate? <laughs> Check him out. O-R-D-E, Wingate. Incredible man, very influential for the state of Israel, the burgeoning, the developing state of Israel. Some of you are aware of Franz de Litch. Who's heard of Franz de Litch? Great translator. Bible, but he, he attempted to take the Brit Hadashah before the modern Hebrew language had been revitalized. He attempted using rabbinic sources and anywhere else where Hebrew was used. He attempted and he succeeded at making a Hebrew language translation of the New Covenant. This is well before Israel became a nation. He lived after that also. But great person. Dr. Robert Lindsay our brother David's father is a great proponent of the state of Israel. And he worked with Arabs and Jews, uh, fluent in Greek and Hebrew, uh, messenger of the Lord for so many there. He worked among the Baptists. Some of you know, because I've mentioned before, but I had the privilege of hearing our own David Lindsay's father preach and teach, and it was memorable. He was an incredible speaker. He's one of the first people that I personally heard that, that weaved together, and I believe it personally impacted me. He weaved together Hebrew and English. He was perfectly capable of, of preaching in Hebrew, and he did. But at certain meetings, he spoke in English, but always Hebrew words came out. And he brought them out, and it was constant training session. Narkey Street Baptist Church in Jerusalem. That at one time in my life, before I was married and was living in Israel, I would walk miles to go to that place to hear Dr. Lindsay. A blessed memory. How many have heard of Raoul Wallenberg? Anybody heard of him? He saved many Jewish people. 
And because of his, his, his extending his hand to them, I believe he was Swedish, but extending his hand to, to persecuted Jewish people, who knows how many hundreds and maybe even thousands of individuals now are living in the state of Israel because of what Raoul Wallenberg did in saving their family. And there's so many more names you can fill in blanks of people from the nations, critical to the Messianic Jewish movement, critical to the state of Israel, and we should thank God for them. Their names are as a memorial, a memoriam for them. Now, I want to conclude with two passages of Scripture. The first one from the Brit Chadashah, from the book of Galatians, is chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then also, Messianic Jews, the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Maybe for some of you here today, this may be a word for you. For God is not unjust to forget your work. He's not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to his people and do minister. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for allowing us to know about these people, men and women that you place their stories in the Scripture that we might learn from them and learn of them and apply the very good principles that were working in their lives by your Spirit apply to our lives. Lord, I pray today that you will continue to raise up a great remnant in the house of Israel among the Jewish people. And I also pray, Lord, that you'll continue to raise up many, many in the nations who will love you, O God of Israel, and love the Jewish people. Thank you, Lord, for your favor in Messiah Yeshua. We pray for all those who are laboring in your harvest fields because the fields are white unto harvest. We pray, Lord, for all the believers in the land of Israel, for the leaders in the land of Israel, for the communities in the land of Israel. Lord, that they will sense your presence, that they will know that you are with them. And we also pray, Lord, that as your good news continues to go out into all the nations, that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to bring forth a great harvest in our generation. Blessed are you, O oh Lord. You've kept us, you have sustained us, and you've brought us to this very season. In Yeshua's name, amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.